Open your Bibles up to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, one of my favorite parts of Scripture. And you guys have probably heard me say that a lot. I guess anywhere where I go into Scripture, I'll say that. But this is one of those ones that's really impacted my life. The things the Lord has taken me through, shown me. And it seems that every time that I find it again, or come across that there's something else that uh, is brought to light in my life and really encourages, uh, uh, challenges me. And so it's one of those verses, and I, I'm sure you guys have them, that you keep going back to, and it keeps getting just deeper and deeper. The meaning doesn't change, but the depth of it goes deeper as you draw closer to your Savior. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with this. It's a very popular scripture that Paul talks about here in his life, but we're going to go through and we're going to look at it this morning. The title is, True Strength Comes from Weakness. True Strength Comes from Weakness. And you'll understand that hopefully at the end, if, we, if I can get through this and, and, and we can study it in the correct way going through these scriptures. And I want to also use a lot out of the Exodus, the actual Exodus when they left Egypt to see this. And so we'll be going over to Exodus for a lot of our um, story and to see things. But um, you guys know as you go through the Bible and your walk with Christ, there's a lot of times that God's going to do things with you that maybe you don't understand what's going on at that moment. And it can seem like it's a torture. So my second child, when she was three, two, somewhere in there, would not let you touch her if she had an owie, if she had a splinter. I mean, that girl, anything, you barely even came close to that. It was like she'd scream and somebody thought you were killing your kid inside the house. She gets a bad sliver in her foot, and this is when we're living in the tropics, so we have to get it out of her or else it's going to get really infected. But she would not let us touch it. And this little girl is strong. She is so strong. So we're there trying to help her out and get this out. It's okay, Zoe. It's going to be all right. Don't look at it. Look away, you know. And they're like, no. And she's, uh, the crunches that kid could do at that age is unbelievable. And the way she could just rip your hands away from her feet. And we're struggling, struggling. Finally, I was like, that's it, Shelly. And I just pick her up by her feet and hang her upside down. And I'm holding on to her legs like this while she's trying to like get up there and swat her hands away from it. And here I am holding on as for dear life because she's like, ah. <laughs> my, my wife's like, hold her still, hold her still, trying to get the pin in there to pop that splinter out. Now, I'm sure if anybody came through that door when we're doing this, and her, she was screaming her head off at the same time, crying her eyes out, they'd probably think, you guys are sick parents. What are you doing to your poor child? You're torturing your child. You know, if they didn't have any of the context, they didn't know what was going on. Sometimes we can feel that way with Christ with what God's doing in our own lives, where it's like we struggle so much against what he's trying to help us in because we don't see the big problem that's coming down the road, the infection. You know, we don't see this great work that he even wants to do in our lives. And so we're sitting there, knocking his hands away from it as he's trying to fix the problem and he's trying to show us. And anybody that comes in the situation be like, wow, your God tortures you. You know, look at how mean your God is. A lot of the atheists say that. I could never believe in a God because he's so vindictive, evil, uh, I mean, they just have a whole list of words that are too big for me to even say, because they are smart people, you know, as far as words. But use all these words against our God, and that's all they can see in him. You know, and if they ever met him, they'd be like, I would ask him this, I'd ask him this. And it's kind of like, do, do you remember you're talking to God of the universe? <laughs> and you're the creation saying, I demand to know these answers. Well, as we go through this morning, I want to challenge us to look and see what is God doing in my life right now? Maybe I'm bucking against something that I'm not letting him deal with, something that I'm pushing his hands away from, something that I think is torture and I can't understand it, some trial, some pain, some need, whatever it is. 
and really open up and say, Lord, what are you doing here? I want you to speak to me. I'm going through a hard struggle in my life, Lord, and I want to see I want to see that your grace is sufficient, that your strength is made perfect in my weaknesses, which is what we're going to talk about. So let's go ahead and read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. It says this, but this I say, oh, sorry, let me get on the right one here. All right, starting in verse, uh, I got mixed up on my verse, there it is, less 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ might re- may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in the infirmities and reproaches, in needs and persecutions and distress, distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And Lord, as we go through your word and study it together, I pray you just bring it to our, our eyes, our ears, Lord, that we would listen to what you're saying. Lord, that you'd cut us to the heart, that we would understand what's going on, and that as we receive this encouragement or this exhortation from you, we'd apply it into our lives. Lord, we see how much you love us as a father that's, you know, either diverting danger in the future from uh, what we're trying to travel into through our own ways, or Lord, you're trying to bring something great, and we keep getting in the way of it. And so, Lord, just help us to walk into your promises, you know, as uh, you encourage us, you show us who you are. And you teach us who you are through our weakness and how awesome and strong you are. And Lord, we would learn this morning that your grace is absolutely sufficient no matter what we're going through in our lives. But we can't wait to see you face to face. What a great day that's going to be. But until then, Lord, we would get to know you. We would know you so deep as we read through your word and we study. And uh, Lord, as we spend time with you. And so please just speak to us this morning. Pour out your spirit on me that we might have a great study together through your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so maybe there's some people here that have been crying out to the Lord for strength to get through something difficult, something hard, or even something impossible in your lives that's going on right now. So I hope this study will bring you an answer, and God will speak to you so clearly through His Scripture to bring you encouragement And as we go through that. Now, what we're going to hit on is three different points in these Scriptures, and we're going to mainly focus on 2 Corinthians. We're going to use the Exodus, like I said, as an example. The three things we're going to focus on in 2 Corinthians is this. God's answer to us, because he answers Paul, right? When Paul asked that, you know, take the thorn out of my flesh, and here's what God answered. So we're going to look at God's answer. We're going to look at what our response is, according to what Paul responded. And then we're going to look at what's the purpose. What is the purpose of it all? And we'll go through each one of these, and I hope that it encourages you guys and brings you to a place of a strength in your relationship with the Lord to where you're not ready to walk away from him saying this is all not true, or he's evil, I don't get this, there is no relationship here. And whatever's been going on in your heads is the enemy tries to deceive you. And so God's answer is Paul pleased to the Lord. You know, he pled with the Lord three times that it might depart from him. We don't know exactly what was going on here. We don't know if it was a person that was there to buffet him, you know, that the enemy was using. We don't know if it was an illness, right? We don't know if it was a situation that was going on, stuff. We do know that at the very end in 10, you know, he lists all these things. He says infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, distresses. That's what it applies to. And I think the Lord didn't put the exact thing Paul was going through in here, 
because then we would only apply it to that certain thing. You know, if it was only applied to a person, we'd say, well, this scripture is only for those people that have a person in their life that's difficult. But rather, we can look at this and say, well, no, through the weakness we're going through, he is made strong in all of these different areas, like verse 10 says. And so God gives us the answer. He says this, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, why wasn't God's answer to Paul a a way of deliverance, right? He could have delivered him from that thorn in the flesh. And that's a lot of times we'll ask, Lord, why don't you just deliver me from this pain, this struggle, this person, you know, the needs that I have? Why not just deliver me, Lord? You'll get glorified out of it. God could, you know, if he delivered Paul out of this, God could say something like this. Instead of saying, my grace is sufficient, he could have said, my power is sufficient for you, for my might is made perfect in my deliverance. And that's true. But why wouldn't God give that to Paul? It's because he wanted to show Paul a different way. He wanted to bring Paul into a better relationship with him, and this is the means of getting there. And maybe that's the same thing going on in your life. Whatever you're going through, this is the perfect way that God can draw you close to him so that you're ready to see him face to face. You might give him glory while you're here on this earth. So instead, Paul's left without a physical relief from his thorn, and he's given insight into God's perfect relationship with his creation. In this perfect uh, relationship, I love this scripture, and one of the times when I was going through it, struggling very hard with big changes that were going on in my life and just questioning God, when I found this scripture, it was just so clear to me what he was speaking was, Curtis, I'm not satisfied with the relationship that I have with you right now. I want you to know me more. And so you're going to go through this trial so that you might know me more. And that was such a mind-blowing thing because I always look at the perspective of I'm going through this so I can be a better person. I'm going through this so I can deal with things in a better way. But rather, when I look at this, it's like God wants me to know him more. The God of the universe is saying, I need you to go through this trial, this weakness, that you might see my strength because otherwise you'd never see it because you get in the way. Right? You think it's your own strength. You think it's your own things that are delivering you from this. I have to take you to a place where it's impossible so that you might see my greatness and know who I am. That way, this relationship is very strong. You're ready to come and worship me. And so let's look at this example from Exodus and how God interacted with his creation or his people in their trials. So turn over to Exodus chapter 5, and we're going to look, and we're going to kind of just do a bird's eye view on this Exodus. We're not going to read through every detail of it. I know you guys have heard this story. If you haven't, please go back and read it. It's an exciting story of the Exodus out of Egypt with God's people. And so we're going to start in Exodus chapter 5, and this is when Aaron, Moses, they've already been called, they're in Egypt, and what ends up happening in verse 1 of chapter 5 of Exodus, it says this, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. He's about to get to know the Lord, isn't he? He's going to go through a bunch of plagues, and he's going to find out how real he is. God is going to go against every one of the gods, the deities of the Egyptians. And he's going to destroy every one of them, showing that he's over each one of those that they've created. And so he doesn't know him yet, but he will get to know him. In verse 3 it says, And so they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence, or with the sword. Now, Moses is saying three days. Give us a three-day journey. Okay? Now, to Mount Sinai, 
from Goshen, the land of Goshen where they were at. I remember when Joseph settled there, he brought his family, 70 people there, and they settled there. Now they've been there for 430 years. The family's grown a little bit since then. And they have this land there. Ramses is another, that's the same place there. And in this place, it's to Mount Sinai, if you were to fly as a bird would, it's about 200 miles. If you're going to walk there, it's anywhere from eight days to eh, 17 days. Do you guys know how long it took them to get there? It took them two and a half months. Two and a half months to get over there. Now, there's a lot of people they're traveling with, but the thing is we're going to look at today is we're going to see what happened along the way. Because you see these people had been in Egypt for how long? 430 years, right? Do you think they set up a temple there to God? The Egyptians wouldn't let that happen. Did they have the Bible? No. Remember, Moses is the one that wrote it, right? He wrote the, the, the Pentateuch, the first five. They're not done yet. So where's their scriptures at? They have oral, right? They've been passing down these awesome stories orally from generation to generation. That's what they have. And it says the God of the Hebrews. For 430 years, they've been looking at the God of the Egyptians, right? And just put yourself in that place. You're a slave there. You're a nobody. Here's a somebody. Who are you going to think whose God is better? I'm sure there were some people that probably thought the Egyptian gods were a little bit more advanced than our Hebrew God. Because look where we are and look where they are. Well, it goes on, though, and that's why the plagues were so important, even for the Israelites, is because he proved himself to be more powerful than all those gods they've been around for the last 430 years. God has to show himself to his people. There has not been great acts. There has not been these wonderful miracles and these powerful actions from God in these years that they've been slaves. I'm sure there's been personal things with them because God is a very personal God. But God needs to show them who he is before they can come to Mount Sinai to worship him. And they're going to go through some stuff. And it's not a lot of fun things. He doesn't give them a bunch of candy and, and give them a pat on the back and say, good job. He doesn't take them and go give them everything they've been asking for. He takes them through some trials. And so looking ahead, or skipping up a little bit, let's look at what ends up happening over in Exodus 12. And this is how we'll go. We'll go through these chapters, just hitting a couple verses here and there. And I want to show you guys how many people are probably going along with this, because that is important to know that this is a pretty good big group of people. Depending on where you're going to get your information from, and I'll tell you what I, I think and what I believe there were. But anyways, look at Exodus 12, 37. It says, Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, which was just a little bit of space there. So they went from Goshen, land of Goshen, which was Ramses, and then they go down to Succoth. This is right after they were delivered. This is We, already, we skipped through all the plagues. The firstborn of the Egyptians was just killed. They went through and took all the different riches from the people, and now they're moving on down to Succoth, getting ready to go out into the wilderness. And so it says there that there was about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Okay, 600,000 men. Now, some people will say, okay, if you have 600,000 men, then women and children are probably going to amount to around 2 million people total. And some people say there's, that it's impossible. You can't have 2 million people. Uh, everybody would have to have 60 people in their family. And I don't know where they get these numbers because when I did it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, how long has America been open, right? How, many, how have we been here? And we brought over, I know, a lot of people, but still we're over millions and millions of people here in the United States. We're talking 2 million people in 430 years. Our country's not even that old. There's some people that say it was only 30,000, uh, 50,000, 60,000. I think the important part and what I want to focus on this morning, we could go through it and I could show you where I think the scriptures prove that there was a big group of people. 
is because the Egyptians, they were saying this number's getting bigger, and that's why they turned them into slaves, right? Also over in chapter 38, it reaffirms that there was over 600,000. And, and uh, yeah, there's a bunch of theirs, but that's not our focus this morning. The focus is what God's doing with this people, whether there's 30,000 or 2 million. What's God going to do with his people as they travel through the wilderness? Now, that is a lot of people to move. And remember, it's only supposed to be a three-day journey. And it took them two and a half months to get there. Exodus 13, 17 says this. Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way to the land of the Philistines, through that, or, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in an orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So right away we see God understands the immaturity of his people. That if they run into the Philistines, they're automatically going to turn back and be like, there's no way I'm not facing war. Because with the Egyptians, I didn't have to deal with that. Now at the end of their journey to Mount Sinai, they actually run into the Malachites, and they actually have a war. But they're not ready for it yet. So God turns them away. And if you look at a map, okay, you have Egypt. Most of you guys know where Egypt is. Mediterranean Sea is north of Egypt, right? If you put your hand, I guess, let's see, it'd be this way on your guys' view. You know, Egypt would be right here. You go up the Mediterranean Sea and Israel's over here, okay? You have the Dead Sea or the Red Sea down here. And if you guys know, it's like bunny ears or two fingers. And so what ends up happening is the way of the Philistines was up here. They could have went right up here into Israel. Super fast trip. But instead, they go way south down here to the Red Sea, and now they're going to cross. And some people believe that Mount Sinai was in the middle of the two fingers, and the other ones believe it was over here. I believe it was over here because the reason they put it here is so that they don't have to cross the Red Sea. You don't have to explain that. You, know, you don't have to say God actually divided the sea. Over here, you do. We'll talk about that in just a second. But he ends up giving them a different way to go, and he preserves them. So we see God's love for his people already. He wants to guide them in the way that they might know him better. Sometimes we don't get it, do we? When we go certain ways and we're like, why aren't you letting me go this way? This is the easier, quicker way. This is the way that makes sense. All right? Why are you turning me away from this? And especially if we would have known what the problems were to come, we'd be like, I'm going to the Philistine way. Or I'm going back to Egypt. I'm not doing it your way, God. And that's sometimes we do that in our life. and doesn't work out very well, does it? I'm sure you guys have testimony of that in your own. So, Verse, thir- or verse 20 in chapter 13, it says, So they took their journey from Succoth, and they camped down to Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So we know beyond a shadow of a doubt they understand God's leading them. If you have this pillar of smoke during the day that's leading you, you're probably not going to have any doubts. And at night, especially the fire, that'd be kind of scary. Big old thing is fire, right? I had a geology professor, an atheist, tell me one time he was trying to talk about how stupid the Bible was. And he said, look at the ignorance of these desert people out here. They think that this, this pillar going around when it was a volcano the whole time that they're heading towards, the volcano of Mount Sinai. And so I said, well, you don't know your scriptures very well, do you? Because it talks about that pillar moving behind them as they're facing in the same direction that they're following in. And I don't know how you do that with a volcano. If you get a big card out and you throw it on top of it and run around behind them, I don't know how you do that. Anyways, fun times with geology professors. They know so much about the Bible. This pillar of smoke there, day and night, they get to see the presence of the Lord leading them where he wants them to go. Jump into chapter 14, verse 2. 
he puts them in a very particular place, and he basically corners them now. Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Hithroth, between Migdol and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. Now, if you guys go look at the Red Sea, and I wish, I mean, we don't have any way of putting pictures up, of course, but you guys can go look at it. There's a place on the Red Sea and on that other finger, all right? So you have the one that's down here, and then you have the one that's on the east side. There is a place that has this valley that goes through the mountains and comes out onto a massive beach that's out there. The name of the beach that they named it nowadays is called uh, Nueba, N-U-W-E-I-B-A, beach. There's actually civilization that's out there. But it's this ravine that comes out onto this massive beach where you could easily fit two two million people to camp out there. So the Lord leads them down through there, brings them to this. North of there was Migdal, which Migdal in the Hebrew means tower or strong fortress. This was a fortress of the Egyptians. And what it was is so that the people couldn't come in, the Philistines, because they were up north, and the other people from the south couldn't come into Egypt without being recognized. It was kind of on the trade route. And so they had this fortress that was up on the north side. And then on the south, they have cliffs that are down there along the Red Sea. You guys can see how they're cornered, right? God brought them out with their back to the sea, looking back at this valley they just came through. Up north is a big old fortress. Down south, there's no way to go because there's a wall. Guess what happens next? Here comes the Egyptians, right? Here comes the Egyptians. And what ends up happening is that he... The Egyptians, Pharaoh, gets 600 of his choice chariots together to go chase these guys down. Because after they left, they're like, what did we do? We lost our servants. Let's go get them. They get down there, and it ends up, they're cornered. And you can imagine the people crying out. I mean, even it says in verses 11 and 12, here's what the people said to Moses. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. Why have you dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. You can see their hopelessness, right? They're like, What are you thinking, Moses? This guy that you hooked up, this God of the Hebrews that you're, you're with, is taking us into a place. Was it not enough that we would just die back in Egypt? You know, at least we had comfort there right? We knew what was going to happen to us. We could predict the things. Why, why would you take us out of it to die in the wilderness? What is the purpose of this? Absolutely upset. No trust in the Lord. Did not understand that his grace is sufficient. Didn't know anything about the strength of the Lord, right? And you guys, I'm sure, have been put up against the sea. You've had your back against the sea. You've been put in an impossible situation, and maybe you are right now in your life. And the Lord's saying, why can you not just trust in me? I am the God of the universe. If I want to make this floating bridge across there, I can do that. Now, they had no idea what was going to happen. We get to look back on it and hear this amazing story of God working. They had no idea. And here's what ends up happening. Moses said to the people in verse 13, this is a great verse here, and I hope this encourages you in your own life. Take this to heart, and you can even say this in your own life. Do not be afraid. Stand still. Stand still. That's hard to do in a crisis, isn't it? In an impossible situation, when you're getting persecuted, when you have needs, when there's tribulation, it's really hard to stand still. You want me just to die? You want these things just to come and happen to me and I just let it happen? You want me to seriously stand still? Don't be afraid. Stand still and, the sal- and see the salvation of the Lord, 
which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see no more forever. That's what Moses tells them after they're complaining and saying, we're done. We're done. And you guys know how the story goes where the pillar, this is where it moves, the pillar moves and it goes into the valley because the Egyptians are coming down the valley okay, that they just came down. And that pillar goes back there and actually blocks their view of the people and it confuses them. It brings a darkness on the Egyptians for the whole night. And then what ends up happening is during that night, the wind blows, right, and it parts the sea. The Lord opens up the sea. So the next morning, there is actually dry ground to walk on. And I can't imagine waking up that morning, or maybe they didn't even sleep because the wind was so crazy. But waking up and being like, are you serious? <laughs> There's a path with water that's stacked on both sides. I can't believe what God has done. This is unbelievable. I mean, put yourself in that situation. But guys, he does that in our lives. He's wanting to do that in our lives. He wants to show his strength when you guys have no escape. When there's no way out and it seems like this crisis is going to overcome my life, I'm doomed. He's just waiting and he's going to let the wind go all night. And there it is, wide open path. Not only that, but the enemies are going to be destroyed, right? They go through it, then he lifts up the smoke. They go after him across there and the water comes back and destroys the whole army. Just like he said, you will not see this army again. They all drowned and they're washed up on the seashore. That's one of the first exciting things that they get to see that the salvation is of the Lord. That's the outcome, right? Now, it's not done there. It's not like, hey, okay, now we're ready to go worship because we just saw this unbelievable, awesome thing that God did. There's still things that need to be taken uh, or considered, and they need to be taken through in their life. So Exodus 15 is the next little trial they have to go through. So Exodus 15, 22, so Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. All right, what was the trip supposed to be? Three days, right? Guess how much water they probably brought with them. Yeah, three days, maybe a little bit more. I don't know if you guys have had to haul water into any places. I, I went hunting last year with a friend, and, and you know there was a bog that was up there, but it was really plugging up the uh, purification water system we had, so I was like, I'll just bring water up there. Water weighs a lot, guys. It weighs a whole bunch. And then we were just going for four days. Holy cow, that was a lot of water. I can't imagine all these people carrying that much water. So they don't have much with them. And now they've run out of it. They're out there and they've run out of it. Now, put your guys again in this situation. You have kids with you. Okay? You have your parents with you. You have your grandparents with you. What kind of sick God would take you out in the middle of the desert to almost die from the Egyptians, and now he does this amazing thing but can't even give you water? Do you see how sometimes we'll even do this with God? You have great things he's done in your life, and here you are saying, God, where's my water at? I'm super thirsty. Where are you at in the times that I need you? When he's already done a huge, unbelievable thing in your life already. And so that's where they are, is complaining again. Verse 23, now when it came, uh, when they came to Mar, they could not drink the water. So it's even more, I think this is like, being in this situation, I'm thirsty. I will drink out of a puddle. Okay. But I come to this puddle or this pond, and it's bitter water, meaning it's not okay to drink. I will get sick, or I will die from it. What kind of God does that? Here's some water for you, but you can't drink it. You only can look at it. Do you see how sometimes people believe that God is just out to get us? And the things, and maybe you've seen this in your own life, where you think that God is just doing this just to drive you nuts or, or just show you who's in charge, right? He's a vindictive God. He's just there to prove his point that he's better than you. 
if you only could see the heart of God. He's just hanging you upside down because he's trying to get the splinter out of your foot. Right? <laughs> he loves you. He doesn't want anything else coming. He puts you before this bitter water so that he can show himself again to be strong in your weakness because there's nothing you're going to do about that water. You're weak. There's nothing that you can do. He wants to show that his grace is sufficient for you. He wants you to know him better. But sometimes we're so self-concerned, so inwardly focused, so selfish that all we can say is, this is not the best thing for me, God. Telling the God of the universe what we think is best for us. So what does he do for the people? Moses, go over there, get that tree, throw it into the water, and now they have sweet water. Drink up, right? Again, God gets to show himself. Next one that he goes on to is in chapter 16. Chapter 16 in verses 1 through 5. And then they journeyed from Eliam, which this is interesting too. I missed this point. Verse 27 of chapter 15. After they did this whole thing with the bitter water, then he actually takes them to this place that has these 12 wells, palm trees, basically an oasis out in the middle of the desert. It's like, well, why didn't you just take us here first? God, why didn't you just let this happen first? So in verse 27, you can read that there in Eliam, which is what the place was, Eliam. Sorry, not Eliam, but Elam, uh, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. And so they camped there by the waters. And they actually, they've, they've tried to go on this journey that they've taken, and they've gone and found this place. There's a place out there that has a ton of more palm trees than that, it says right there. But they actually found little places of square rocks where they believe that the tents were set up. It's really neat as they walk through this journey that they had, they can find these different archaeological places and, and prove that this is probably where they went. Um. Anyways, so they're journeying from Elam, and all of the congregation, in verse 1 of chapter 16, the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt, then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now what? They got their water, they got their palm trees, they're leaving that spot, and now they're put out in another place of desperation. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died in the hand of the, or died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. After those other things they've gone through, here they are again, longing to be back where there was surety in Egypt. We were eating. Yeah, we were slaves, but we had food. Lord, I love my old ways. At least I was comfortable in that place. Yeah, I was facing death damnation but hey you know what i mean at least i knew <laughs> being out here trusted in you i gotta trust in you every day that you're gonna provide for me what have you done are you just out here to kill me that's where they're at it's a sad place then the lord said to moses in verse four behold i will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that i may test them whether they will walk in my law or not and so god ends up giving them bread from heaven manna right this ends up being for the next 40 years they're going to eat this. Also, he gives them meat and he gives them quail. So they can go out at night and they can find the quail and get them. And in the morning, the manna's, you know, little flakes are there and so they can cook them. And then he tests them by having them collect each day and it goes bad the next day except for on the Sabbath, right? And he lets them rest for a day. But if they keep it, worms grow in there and eat it up. It gets pretty nasty. This is the next, next example of him showing himself, revealing himself to his people. The next one they go to is in chapter 17, and I love this one. This one's a neat one. It goes to this rock, right? In verses 1 through 7, again, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim 
but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Like, have you not seen it yet? Why not just go to him and say, Hey, Lord, I'm thirsty. Can I have a little bit of water? Instead, they're angry. They're in contempt, right? They're complaining, going after Moses. Therefore, the people contended with Moses, and he said, Give us water. In verse 3, And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us again? And our children and our livestock, don't you even care about us? You're going to kill off our children too? What kind of sicko are you? Bringing us out here not to drink. After they already had the testimony of being able to drink that sweet water out of the bitter. The Lord said to Moses, go before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take your hand in your hand your rod with which you strike the river and go. With which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb. And you will strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did in the sight of the elders of Israel. To this day, they have pictures of this massive rock about 50 feet high. It's split right down the middle. And on the ground, there's actually, it looks like water's worn across on both sides, this little pathway. And then there's, again, there's a ton of these different square rock outcroppings where it looks like they camped there for a little bit. And you can go, and there's no way that this water came out of this rock, at least according to the secular point of view. They don't understand how these rocks are all smooth coming from this massive rock. But they believe that's where this water came from. And so anyways, God provides water by breaking a rock, right? Which we know what that means later on. Breaking the rock and giving them water so that they might have the living water come from the rock. Now, one of the last examples I want to hit on before we go back over to 2 Corinthians is in chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. We're not going to go through all of it, but here's where they end up going against their first enemy. Now, the Mal- now Amalek... Uh, came out, fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose uh, some men to go out uh, to fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hands that Israel prevailed. And when he let them down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took the stone and put it under him, so he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Whole another lesson can be taught here, right? The helping hands that come alongside to hold up uh, Moses' hands. But what we see here again is here is God's people coming up against their first enemy. Somebody wants to take them out. And here it is, God gives away. He becomes their salvation to them. He uses Moses, Aaron, and Hur to be able to defeat the Amaleks with, through Joshua, right? As Joshua took his men out there and fought them. Okay, then they finally get to come to Mount Sinai, right? 19, in the, chapter 19, verse 1, in the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, so that Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and let the children of Israel, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. How is God putting you on his wings, and bringing you to himself. 
Just think about the situations you're going through life, the hard things you're dealing with. Can you not see that that is God bringing you to himself? Again, looking back over at 2 Corinthians, if you guys turn back over there, we're done in Exodus. And that verse is so cool where it's talking about him putting on the wings, bringing him to himself. That's what I see happening here with Paul. By when he says that my grace is sufficient for you, my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's where we get to see it is through that suffering, those trials, the needs that we have, the persecution we may have to go through. His answer is to us and to what he says to Paul here when we go and ask him, why have you not taken this thorn on my flesh? Why are you not resolving this situation in my life? His grace has been shown to be sufficient They were unable to sustain themselves, right? The Israelites, they were unable to sustain themselves, so God's grace was shown to be sufficient. But if they had everything they ever needed, they would probably say, well, give ourselves a pat on the back. We planned this all out really well. We knew what we were doing, right? How does that draw you to God? God, I'm so glad that you made me so smart (laughs) that I have no flaws. I don't even know why you died for me. I have no sin. You know, you see where this goes? Self-exaltation, not a good place to go. His strength has been made perfect in their weakness through the, in the Israelites. To this day, we speak of the greatness of God because of what he did through their inability and their weakness. Do you understand that if they did not have that inability and that weakness, we would not have seen God work as mightily as he did? If they had another way of escape, if they were strong people and they could have went out and taken out that fortress, how does that bring glory to God? We get to see unbelievable things that happen with him, and they got to see it firsthand so they might be ready to be before him, to worship him as he brought them to himself on his wings. That's what God is doing in your trials. That's what he's doing right now in you, and you have the option to say, nope, I hate you. I hate what I'm going through. It's everybody else's fault. I'm not going to deal with this right now. Whatever it is, rather than turning to him and saying, Lord, help me to understand where I'm at with you right now. Am I on your wings right now? You're bringing me to yourself. Help me to yield to that, humble myself before you, Father. And so what our response, that next part, what is the response? He says in verse 9 of chapter uh, 12 of 2 Corinthians, at that second part, part B, Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities than the power, that the power of Christ might rest upon me. This is my response. Also, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. I take pleasure in reproaches. I take pleasures in the needs I have. I take pleasures in persecutions and distresses. You see, this is completely a different mentality, but Paul is understanding what's going on here. God is bringing him to himself. God is making the relationship between them greater. He's helping him understand who he is. But you have to go through weakness, inability, crisis, hard times to get there with the Lord. That's what ends up happening. That response, Israel did not demonstrate this. Instead, they complained the whole way, right? They didn't choose to go the way that Paul did. They decided to complain, and they longed for their comfort in captivity. Be careful that you're not longing for your comfort in your own captivity and where the enemy wants you to be. When Paul's attitude is contrasted with the Israelites' attitude, I see no lack of faith, hope, and love in Paul's life. See, Israel had no faith in God working into his purpose, right? They had no hope in his promises. And they had no love for the one who brought them to salvation. It was all about self. They completely put faith, hope, and love in the wrong place. 
The Israelites seem to be the children with a lack of maturity in their relationship with God. We even see it in the very first. He says, I'm not going to take them up to the Philistines because they'll run away right away. They'll go back to Egypt. I have to take them this other way. Now, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You guys know probably this chapter is the chapter of love if you turn over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Not 2 Corinthians, 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 11 through 13 says this. Paul has just got done talking about how awesome love is, and he says this. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. It's all going to be revealed when God's awesome plan is. You might see dimly now, but we'll know it. And then he says this in verse 13, And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. In this maturity that we talk about here, think of the maturity of a person that has been through a lot in their lives. That they have been a person that's chosen to rely on Christ, right? Just think of people that have gone through horrible illnesses and they, the whole time they're focused on Jesus, the whole time through it. Look at that maturity that they have. If they've been hurt by another person, if they've gone through those things, if they've gone through need and they've been very, you know, they've been in poverty, they've had extreme persecution, you watch them and the little things in this world seem to graze off of them after that. It means it's a very little thing to have somebody come up and say something mean to you. Whereas another person, that's a crisis in their life. This person said something mean. This person drove by on the roundabout and flipped me off because it was my turn. Right? That's a crisis in my life now. I'd, I'd encourage you. That's, that's more of the childish mindset. But here it is. We've put off those childish things. And it's because of what we've gone through. We've seen this perspective of there's something so much greater and these little problems can just graze off me. And then the big problems, I've understood that I take them to the throne. I don't try to deal with them on my own. I don't try to resolve them on my own. I take them to him. Those are the people. These are the people that are able to look at their trials and boast in them that the power of Christ might rest upon them. God is calling us to do that as well, that we might boast in our infirmities. And that's not saying that somebody says, you wouldn't believe the other day what happened to me. And you're like, no, 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 hold up. I even had it worse than that. That's not what it's saying in boasting your infirmities, all right? I'm sure where somebody in here can one-up everybody. That's not why we go through that. What it's talking about is I boast in my infirmities. Like, I want to talk about what God has done through this. What he's showing me, how he's bringing me to himself. I will boast in these things. That the power of Christ might rest upon me. I take pleasure. These people that have this maturity take pleasure because their faith, their hope, and their love all rest on Jesus Christ and not on circumstances, people, or materials which all change and are inconsistent. Our world right now is placing all three of these things, faith, hope, and love, they place it on these different deals, people, right? And maybe you do this too. You've based it completely on your relationship with your spouse and that's where you're trying to get everything from them. Guess what? Your spouse will fail you. They're a person. Okay? There will be failure there. You're supposed to be putting that on Jesus Christ. And you're not going to change them. Okay? Jesus Christ is the one that changes them. Any relationship you have, not just in the, with your spouse, but any relationship you have, don't base these on that person. People change. Circumstances are always changing. I only have peace, joy, and happiness in my life when things are going well. Because it's all based on circumstances. It's not based on Jesus Christ who never changes. The other thing is I go buy things because it makes me happy. You know, I got these new deal. What, what happens after that? I need the next thing, though, because I've, I'm bored with it now. I've had it a year. 
Oh, look at this other cool thing that came out, right? Both for men and women. It's not just guys in their cars or whatever you guys are into, but you guys know how it can get. Some people, it really does. It's an addiction. It brings you happiness to go to Amazon and click on buy now, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't base it on those things. Base it on Jesus Christ. Put your faith and your hope and your love in Jesus Christ. Now, that's our response. Israel was, the Israelites were discontent, anxious, distraught, inconsistent, angry, etc. because they based it all on those things. You see that in your life. If you see that you're discontent, anxious all the time, distraught, inconsistent, angry, if that's going on, it's because of where you're placing. It's because of who you're not realizing is doing a work in your life that he might draw himself close to you. That's the problem. The problem is not everybody else around you or your situations or any of that. You're always going to have that. You've been given Jesus Christ, that he may rest upon you, that the power of Jesus Christ might rest upon you. And so our response is to be founded, to be anchored, and to be abiding in Jesus Christ. Which leads us on to the next one. The thing is that we might know our Father. What leads us to this purpose? Why are we going through this? Why am I going through this problem? It's that I might know my Heavenly Father. God is not satisfied with his relationship with you. He wants you to know him in a way that is only possible through suffering in this present time. Be encouraged in that. Boast, like it says, boast that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Take pleasure, right, in those things for the sake of Christ. That's the purpose of why we're going through this. So we have his answer that he gives us, that his grace is sufficient. His strength is made perfect in our weakness, right? Then we have our response and how we're going to look at this, how we're going to deal with it, that we boast in our infirmities. We take pleasure, and the reason for it, the purpose for it, is for Christ. That the power of Christ, that he might be glorified, the power of Christ might rest upon us, and it's for his sake. We're missing out on so much when we trust ourselves and when we try to be strong in our own will and when we choose to love ourselves over God. I'm going to call the worship team up here as we close out. And it didn't rain on us. Thank you, Jesus. That's good. Look at that. Blue skies. So, just to conclude here, when it's in our own power and for our own sake, we're guaranteed to remain in our defeated state. If you feel like you cannot get it out of this state that you're in, it's because you're relying on your own power and it's for your own sake. Enter into his promise. Do you see the Israelites did not do that? They kept focusing on the here and the now. They weren't looking at what God was doing. Now look at this. Those reasons I went through, those four different deals that they went through, or those five different deals, this parting of the sea, and on after that, is because it points to Jesus Christ again, the purpose. The purpose. Jesus is the bread from heaven, isn't he? He says, if you hunger, come and eat. I am the bread of life. Jesus is the rock that poured out the living water. You drink water on this earth, you're going to thirst again. We saw that they thirsted again. But if you drink of my water, you'll never thirst again. I am the living water, is what Jesus Christ says. He's that rock and horb that was broken open that the living water might pour out for us. Jesus is the salvation. He is the salvation that they were looking for, that Moses told them, hold on, you're going to see the salvation of the Lord. Stay still. He's the strength that comes from the weakness. 
And I love this part. He will turn the bitter into the sweet. The bitterness that you're facing in your lives right now, the things you're going through, Jesus Christ wants to turn it into sweetness. That does not mean the problems are taken away. It doesn't mean all of a sudden I won't ever feel that way again. It means that the purpose, the direction, the focus is completely on him. And the submission and our humility goes before him and says, Jesus, you take over. That your power might rest on me. Lord, that it's all for your sake that you might be glorified. I want to know you more. I'm so excited the God of the universe is calling me to him that I might know him. Lord, put me on your wings so that I might know you. Lord, we love you so much and thank you so much for your scriptures. How powerful they are, how encouraging they are, Lord. I pray for each person here and myself included, Lord, that we would understand these things and we would seek and run after you. We would trust you as we go through these hard times in our lives, Lord, that you might be glorified, that it be for your namesake. We cannot wait to be face to face with you, but until that time, we would just make you proud as your children. We wouldn't get focused on the things of this world, Lord. We wouldn't be focused on ourselves. You continually remind us through your word and time with you that we need to seek you first, that we need to put you first in everything that we do. We need to get the focus off of ourselves and our situations, circumstances, stuff, other people, Lord, and we would just keep our eyes on you. So we walk out across that water, Lord, keep our eyes focused on you. Thank you so much for this day that we got to have. Thank you so much, Lord, for the weather. You gave us great weather today. And uh, just everybody have a great, wonderful day with their families and encouraging each other through your words. Lord, we pray these in your name. Amen.